everyone to their seats. Make sure the hallways are clear. Because of the Lord, they fear. Y'all better get inside here. For most people, heaven is a conceptual place where their wildest dreams come true. Most of the major world religions have some conceptual framework of an afterlife where you are rewarded for what you do in this life. Even people who do not believe in any organized religion at funerals will be said of them that they are in a better place. I've been to funerals where I know the people well enough to know that they're not in a better place. I knew some of these folks. I knew how they lived, and I was with them moments before they died. And the better place is not something I'm familiar with for people like that. There is an, almost an entitlement that people have to go to heaven. There's almost an entitlement. It's almost like presumed. And if you are a Christian, it's even more presumed to go to heaven. In fact, if I were to ask this question, do you want to go to heaven, how many of you would say yes by show of hands? Okay. Keep your hand up for a second. Why are you afraid? This is your eternal destination, right? What are you scared of? But they say if you're scared, go to church. Well, you went to church, right? You want to go to heaven, right? Do you really want to go to heaven? Okay. Almost every professing Christian does. But why then does the thought of worshiping Jesus for thousands of years make so many people dissatisfied with the idea of going to heaven. Why does the thought of worshiping Jesus, singing to Jesus for thousands of years, turn many professing Christians off from heaven? Among Christians, when thinking about heaven, the most commonly asked question that reveals a lack of excitement about heaven is, will we be worshiping for like thousands of years? Yeah, a few of you are gung-ho about it. But for most people, most professing believers, this is a turnoff. The prospect of singing for thousands of years to Jesus is one of the most unappealing things among professing believers, but yet everyone said they really want to go to heaven. And yet many of you are turned off by the prospect of singing to Jesus 
for an unextended, undisclosed period of time. So do you really want to go to heaven? Well, what heaven do you want to go to then is the question. Why is this a turnoff to so many believers? I've been surprised throughout my life as a believer over 20 plus years that this actual issue is one of the most common questions that reveal that professing believers who want to go to heaven are not excited about it. Why? What heaven do you want to go to? Could it be that we don't really want to go to heaven? We want to go to a heaven, but not that heaven. Let's be honest today, brothers and sisters. How can you want to go someplace, but then complain about what you may do when you get there? If you come to my home and I say shoes off, and you say, well, I'm not comfortable taking my shoes off, cool. I'm not comfortable with you coming in. You better take your shoes off and care how she's not playing. Why is worshiping Jesus such a big deal for people who are adamant that they want to go and are presuming they're going to heaven? And how do you know that God, knowing that you don't even desire to really worship him, is going to say, welcome home? How do you know that? There's no one that have died that has come back and said, hey, here are the things that Jesus is good with you not doing and not doing well in for you to get in. How do you know that Jesus will look at you and know that on earth, the thought of spending eternity with him was something you were not excited about. And so he says to you, you not coming home. How do you know? Why is the thought of worshiping Jesus for an undisclosed extended period of time a turn off? to professing believers. I think there are two main reasons why many professing Christians balk at the idea of singing to Jesus or worshiping Jesus for an extended period of time. And I think it is a wonderful scheme of the devil. It is a very good scheme. Because he's made our eternal destination somewhat boring to us. But this particular issue, it's a scheme of the devil. Let me explain. And let's go back to the supernatural storyline of the Bible for a second. We're going to Genesis 3. <laughs> Told y'all we wasn't going back there again. But the Lord has forgiven my deception. For people who weren't a part of this series or may have forgotten, let me explain 
one detail that you must understand real quick. It's called the principle of double interpretation. Some people call it that. And what it means is there are times when God is talking to an individual, but he's also speaking to the spiritual entity behind that individual. Right? So it's not like God may be talking to the king of a particular nation, but he's also talking to the supernatural evil force, Satan or some other, that is inspiring the actions of that particular king. We see this in Genesis 3. After Adam and Eve bite from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God shows up and asks them, why did you do this? And they each, Adam gave an answer, Eve gave an answer, and then God responded in verse 14 with this particular idea in mind. So here's what he says in verse 14 of Genesis 3. Talking to the serpent. Here's what he said. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So he's clearly talking to the actual creature and saying, because you allow, for whatever reason, Satan to do this through you, your punishment will be you will lay on your belly, eat dust the rest of your life, which means the snakes that we know didn't look like snakes initially. They weren't necessarily flat and slithering on the ground. This is a punishment from God talking to the snake. And then he says this in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's no longer talking to the actual creature saying that I will put enmity between hatred between your children, and her children. In verse 14, God is talking to the creature. In verse 15, God is talking to Satan, who inhabited the creature that deceived Adam and Eve. This is what some call the principle of double interpretation. With that in mind, let's return back to a passage that we are familiar with that describes God talking to Satan in Ezekiel 28. Now, he's talking to the king of Tyre, a particular region in the Mesopotamian area. But these things cannot be said of any human being. So he's clearly, while talking to the king, he's talking to the spiritual entity behind the evil that the king has done to people. And so he says this in Ezekiel 28, beginning in verse 12, reading three verses, 12, 13, and 14. He says this, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. So this is a lamentation, sadness over the actions of a particular human being. But here's what God says. You were the signet of perfection. There's no one that's been perfect. There's no human being that's been perfect except Jesus. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. There's no human being apart from Adam and Eve that had been in Eden. Because after they were kicked out, God put cherubim there with flaming swords to not allow anyone else to enter that garden. It says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. LaShawn, thanks for sending me carbuncle. Now I know what it is. Thank you. I love our church. She sent me, sent me a picture of it so I know what it looks like. 
Might get some jewelry one day. <laughs> Bring back the three-fingered rings, three-fingered carbuncle rings. And he said, it was crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. What human being has ever been called a supernatural being? Cherubs are supernatural beings. He's not talking to the king of Tyre. He's talking to Satan. He says, I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of fire. In the midst of the stones of the fire, you walked. So here is God saying to the enemy, to Satan, you were in Eden, the garden of God. This is prior to Adam and Eve. Saying you were given all these precious stones. On the day you were created, they were prepared for you. You were an anointed guardian cherub. Now, I said in the supernatural storyline of the Bible that I think Satan was the first created being. It was the most powerful. I'm not going to explain all of that now. You have to go back in the series and find it. He's acknowledging all these things that he was given, but there's a word here that wouldn't make sense to us that makes sense in the original language, in the Hebrew. He says, and crafted in gold, this is verse 13, the end of it, and crafted in gold were your settings, your engravings. Settings? What does that mean for us? It's like, well, let me go on my phone and change my setting. But in the Hebrew, settings is the word tof. And that word is translated hand drum, tambourine, a shallow drum with a single drum head with metallic discs in the sides, a harp, treasure. This is a translation issue. This is a Remember, whenever you're reading the Bible, you're reading a translation from an original language. And if it's the New Testament, it's Koinea Greek, and that's a dead language. No one speaks that language anymore. So it's translation issues. And, and, and the original language can have multiple meanings depending on the context in which it shows up. We have the same thing. There. Sounds the same. But depending on what I say, hey, have you seen my jacket? Have you seen my friends? Yeah, they're over there. That's not T-H-E-R-E, or it could be. <laughs> the point is language is multifaceted, and depending on the context will describe what it means. So if a different translation said like the King James, I know some people swear by the King James. They'll fight you. Here's what the King James says. Thou hast, this is why I don't read it, just because of that. <laughs> Thou hast, it feels like, I feel like I'm Shakespeare. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, the barrel, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and the gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Here's what workmanship means. Trade, mission, business, handiwork. Craftsmanship. Tabrets is the same Hebrew word as settings. Tof. It means tambourine, hand drum. So Satan's trade, business, service was the tambourine, hand drum. And this is where the idea that he was the worship leader in heaven comes from. This is where it comes from. 
Somehow Satan was responsible in some way, shape, or form for music. And I believe it's why he schemes us with it. Keep in mind that Satan tempting Adam and Eve to decide good and evil on their own apart from God is exactly what he did to oppose God. Remember in Matthew 16 when, when, when Peter told Jesus, no, Lord, far be it from you to be crucified. What did he say? Get behind me, Satan. Because it is to God, not to us. We would be like, oh, we understand what he's trying to say. He meant well. But God would say, if your thought is outside of God's will, it's satanic. So Satan tempts Adam and Eve to basically imitate him, to define good and evil on their own. But when Adam and Eve bit the fruit as representatives of all humanity, we, we inherited the same characteristic. Just like everyone in here, for, mo for the most part, looks, acts, or has habits that come from your parents. Sometimes even grandparents. I remember one time I was sitting down writing something, and I had my tongue out like this. And I was like, wow, my I just realized my tongue is out. I was like, I'm related to Michael Jordan. No, but what I realized was my grandfather did that all the time. When I was a kid, I used to see him all the time. It was like, and I used to be like, Granddad, why your tongue out, Granddad? Don't bite your tongue. When I was a kid, I used to think that was so funny. He didn't. But he laughed. Here I find myself doing that. Somehow I inherited that particular trait. I look like my dad. You look like someone you inherited that. We inherited from Adam and Eve a desire to define good and evil on our own. And that's what sin is. Whenever you think, well, I'm doing this, especially despite if God says do that. That's the problem with all of us. We just decide good and evil on our own. And we're entitled to that. Every sin is that issue. We've inherited that from Adam and Eve who are imitating Satan. So every time we do that, we're imitating Satan. It's his job to make us imitate him. And that's exactly what happened to humanity after they bit the fruit. Let's go back to Genesis 3.15. We're going to read this and ask a question. Genesis 3.15, he says this, talking to Satan. I will put enmity, which means hatred, between you and the woman. And between your offspring, your children, and her child, individual, right, singular. He, not they, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Satan's offspring is plural. Eve's is singular. So here's the question. Why does Satan have offspring? How in the world did you have offspring when God created Adam and Eve. Why is God telling Satan now, just because Adam and Eve bit the fruit, that he now has offspring? As far as we know from the biblical account, Satan doesn't have any children, doesn't have a wife. I know when I was a kid, it used to rain and be sunny. They would say Satan is beating his wife. 
Can't find it in any credible translation, but if it did, let me know. We have no concept for why Satan has offspring. Why does he have children? And how does he have children after Adam and Eve bit the fruit? What is God trying to say? God is saying humanity now belongs to you because they imitate you. You have become their father now. But there's going to be a bo- one that's born, a he, that you will not be the father of. And he's going to crush you. Spoiler alert, that he is Jesus. In case. Stay tuned, we'll be back next week, same time. Satan has offspring. Listen to 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. Just in case you think I'm making it up. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So God's perspective is if you are not a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, you are a child of the devil. It doesn't matter how you feel or what you, how you define love or none of it. We are not all God's children. We are all God's creation. God's children are people that do what he says, that, that believe in Jesus. So he's saying these people are their people who belong to the devil. He told the Pharisees in John 8, they said, our father is Abraham. Jesus said, your father is the devil. Satan is trying to make us be like him instead of Jesus. He wants to be our father and wants us to imitate him. And what better way to help accomplish that? What better way to imitate Satan than to not be excited about or having a disdain for worshiping Jesus for all eternity? What better way to make you and I who have no idea what it's like, who have no idea. What a great scheme to make you and I think, man, uh, we're going to be singing. How how long do you think we're going to be singing, Pastor? (laughs) Probably longer than we do in church on Sunday, I mean. What a great scheme. This is what Satan was created to do. When you were created, the tambourine and the drum and all these jewels were created for you. The thing Satan was created to do is what we were created to do, to worship. The thing Satan hates to do, he tempts us to not look forward to doing. You are not asking that question. You do not have a disdain for worshiping Jesus in eternity For no reason. It is a scheme of the devil. He has convinced us that our eternal destination is boring. And many of you will not want to admit that. But if you're honest, you will admit it. You are not that excited about going to heaven. And the thought of worshiping or singing to Jesus And our response to it is an imitation of Satan himself. 
What a good scheme. What a good scheme. Many professing believers have been schemed by the devil to not be excited about going to heaven. Let me tell you why it's a brilliant scheme. Because if heaven is the reward, and if I don't like the reward, I'll be less motivated to do what it takes to receive the reward. I'll be less motivated. Less motivated. I remember one time for Christmas, I didn't, I didn't get asked what did I want from every relative, but you just kind of assume like people know what to do. You know? We don't believe in Santa Claus here. If you do, I'm sorry. If you told your kids that, repent. And then I was honest with my kids. I never told them about Santa. And if it was, he would have been black in front of the street. I'm just kidding. So. But this one Christmas, for whatever reason, I had expectations. Had expectations. So we were giving out gifts. You looking at the size of it, like, oh, that's too big to be a card with money. So, okay, that looks like that's not a card. Then I got this card from an uncle who was well off. I said, okay. <laughs> I took my time, tried to be cool, opened it up, and it was a card. Yes. Merry Christmas. I didn't care what it said, but I read it like I can. I could feel something was in it, but I read it with great care. Merry Christmas and have a And I said thank you to him before I even opened it up. And that was from the Lord because when I opened it up, it was a Home Depot gift card. My heart sunk. A dark cloud immediately went over my body. At that point in time, I hadn't been to Home Depot once in my life. I had no, what was I going to do, go get some light bulbs or something? I had no, go get a tool set. I was like, man, I don't want, but I, I was like, oh, that's what's up, Home Depot. Thank you. Yeah, man, thank you. Yeah. Showing everybody like it mattered. It was a, I was blown. From that Christmas on. I never was excited about getting gifts from him. And I started giving him Lowe's and CVS cards. And I was a different person back then. Nikki knows. I wasn't excited about Christmas because I didn't know what I was going to receive from him. I knew I wouldn't like it. How are you excited about going to heaven if you don't like the reward? You're not excited about going to heaven. You don't think about going to heaven. Only when people are about to die or only when you see a movie, many of us don't even think about it. When you're older, you do because you're, you're closer to that, presumably. Or when you've lost someone you care about and you believe that they're there, then that, that comes to your mind. But for most of us, we live not thinking about eternity at all. And when we do think about it, we're like, ah. I like this life down here. What a brilliant scheme of the devil. 
But there's one more scheme that's even better. And I must highlight it today. Satan has made us think that heaven is the opposite of hell. He's made us think that heaven is the opposite of hell. And heaven is not the opposite of hell. When you think heaven is the opposite of hell and you have two choices, everyone, whether you believe in Jesus or not, is going to choose the opposite of hell. Everyone. There are major world religions where people do things because their conception of heaven versus hell is what motivates them. There are holy wars that people fight. With this preconceived notion that this is what they'll receive in heaven and to not do so would be hell. There isn't a person alive that if you gave them two options and said both of these are real places, where do you go? Unless you had something cognitively wrong, you were going to choose the opposite of hell. But heaven is not the opposite of hell. And that is a scheme of the devil to make us think so. Let me explain what I mean. Let's start first with what is hell? What is hell? Let's look at Mark 9, verse 43. We just get descriptions like this. What is hell? It says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. So here we get hell is an unquenchable fire. From Jesus. This is Jesus' own words. So he, God, is saying hell is an unquenchable fire. Continuing in Mark 9, beginning in verse 47, he says another thing. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. So here is a description of hell where it says the worm does not die. In other words, there will be eternal antagonism. He says the fire is not quenched. There is no break, no rest. There is no HVAC. That doesn't exist. And he said, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is a preservation. Back in the day when Jesus was talking, they didn't have refrigerators like we do, so they would put salt on their food to preserve it. But salt also, because it cleans, it, it hurts when you put it on a wound. You ever cut yourself and put salt on you? Like, ah, man, I thought this was supposed to be, oh I, oh, I meant to put sugar on, not salt. It's painful. So when it says that everyone will be salted with fire, it's saying fire will be the salt that's on your body, the pain. This is hell. 
2 Peter 2.4, Peter's describing what happened to angels who sinned in, in the flood. He said, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So here is another description. Hell, there are some angels who are in chains of gloomy darkness. Hell is a gloomy darkness. Matthew 25, 30. And cast the worthless, the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here is darkness and weeping. Gnashing of teeth. Every one, Christian or non-Christian, wants to go to the opposite of this place. Everyone. But heaven is not the opposite of this place. What do I mean? We looked at what hell is. Darkness, fire, torment, worm doesn't die, weeping and gnashing of teeth. But heaven is not the opposite of this. Or isn't it? Sort of. What is heaven? To find that out, go to Dean's group. Dean, when do you guys meet with that? Go to Thursdays. All right, let's pray, and then we'll go ahead and close, and Dean will. Heaven is technically a noun, right? Remember what a noun is? Person, place, thing? We almost always imagine heaven as a place, a location beyond this world. And this will be true. But it's much deeper than that. Beginning in, re verse, in, in Revelation, beginning in verse 21, chapter 21, verse 9, we're going to read through 22, 1 through 5 and make a few observations of what we see. Revelation 21, verse 9 says this. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now, this is a question for another day. But isn't it interesting that the bride in Revelation is described as a city? But we're supposed to be the bride of Christ, though, people. But we're not a city. So how is the bride a city if people are the bride of Christ? That's a question for another day. Just wanted you to think about it. Verse 11. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great, a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates of 12 angels. And on the gates of the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, three gates. 
And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length, the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. So a cubit is from your forearm to your however long that is. That's what a cubit is. And he said angels are using the same measurement. And then he says this. Verse 18, the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth cornelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jason, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates were made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass, describing a great place. But let's be honest, it's unimpressive. It's unimpressive. No one's like, oh my gosh. Maybe in a rare moment you think that way, but for the most part, you're not impressed with this description. Yet this is what God put in his word so that people could imagine what heaven would be like. And then it closes with this description in Revelation 22, 1 through 5. It says this, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp, no light, or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign with him forever and ever. So isn't this the opposite of hell? Sort of. But it's more than that. Let's make a couple observations from these last five verses. These verses center around one phrase. This description in Revelation 22, 1 through 5, it centers around one phrase. One phrase. And this phrase is found nowhere else in Scripture except in this scene. There may be words that are there, but nowhere is this phrase packaged in the Bible except in this scene, twice. And the phrase is this, the throne of God and of the Lamb. This phrase is used twice in this scene because everything that is described is connected to and revolves around this scene, the throne of God and of the Lamb. Look at verse 1 of Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. 
through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river that's flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The tree of life is there with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Where is it? By the river, connected to the throne of God and of the Lamb. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That's a crazy statement. Is that in heaven, those of us who will be there will at some point be eating fruit from this tree that is the healing of the nations. The suffering that we experienced here has not been forgotten by God. But it doesn't just go away either. We will remember. And so these Whatever this tree will be is somehow going to heal us from the traumas that we've experienced here. So you got the living water, the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, all centered around the throne of God and of the Lamb. Let's look at verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. Why? The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. Where? Around the throne of God and of the Lamb. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Where will they see his face? Around the throne of God and of the Lamb. His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So nothing will be accursed. Why? Because the throne of God and of the Lamb is there. Servants will worship him where? At the throne of God and of the Lamb. They will see his face at the throne of God and of the Lamb. His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. The Lord God will be their light. and We will reign forever because the throne of God and of the Lamb are there. God saved the most important description for the last chapter of his word. The most important element about heaven is that the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there. Heaven is centered around the throne of God and of the Lamb. A more biblical definition of heaven is simply the place where we will see Jesus' face forever. Being in the presence of Jesus forever. Hell is a place of eternal suffering. The opposite of hell is a place of no eternal suffering. But heaven is not just a place of no eternal suffering. Heaven is about being in the presence of God and seeing his face forever. No suffering is just a feature, but is not ultimately what heaven is. We are not just going to the opposite of eternal punishment. 
we are going to be in the presence of the one who was punished for us. But sadly, many believers, including in this room, do not think about seeing Jesus. You are more excited to see people who are in the presence of Jesus than to be in the presence of Jesus and see him yourself. And I used to be like that. When I thought about heaven, it was just about, man, I glorified body. Anytime I got sick or something, I'd be like, man, I can't wait to go to heaven. I'm not sick no more. I don't got to struggle with sin no more. Temptation is gone. I want to talk to Paul. I got a couple. I have so many questions. I want to see what Bathsheba looked like to make David jump out there like that. Like, man, what? Bro, you could have had any woman in the kingdom. What was Bathsheba looking like for you to be like, get her? I have questions. I used to think about that all the time. It's the opposite of forever. I didn't think about it was seeing Jesus forever. And being in his presence forever. That wasn't what heaven was about to me. In fact, I wouldn't have intellectually said this, but I functionally thought that as long as I get to heaven, I don't care if Jesus is there. And if you're not going to see Jesus, neither do you. It's not just a place of no eternal punishment. It's the face of God who created everything. And the focus is they will see the throne of God and the lamb. They will see me face to face. My name will be on their foreheads. There will be a river that's as clear. There will be a tree of life. There will be worship. The throne of God and of the lamb is there. And all the people that we know and love that have made it there, the people who were here yesterday, that celebrate, grieve the loss of their loved ones, those people who made it there, that's where they are. It's not just a place of no eternal punishment. Because if hell is just, if heaven is just the opposite of hell, and you don't, it's not about being with Jesus, then why do we need to obey Jesus? Anything good can get us to a place that's better than hell. And many people live like this. But here's the other part. If heaven is about being in the presence, right? It's not the opposite of suffering forever. It's being in the presence of the sufferer forever. If that's what heaven's about, We're not ready to go there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can't just live in the presence of God forever. We're not ready to go there. Because we're sinful, right? Yeah. We're not ready to stand in the presence of God forever. And many of us don't even desire it. We just want to go to the opposite of eternal punishment, not the presence of Jesus. We're not ready for that. What do I mean by this? 
Go back to Revelation 22, verse 3. Here's what he describes in his description. This is God wanting us to know this about heaven. Here's what he says. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. So his servants will worship him, but anything accursed will not be there. What does accursed mean? That's the key. Accursed. Greek word, katathema. It means a cursed thing, something that has been cursed, not allowed to be in the presence of God. Listen to Matthew 25, verse 41. Five verses, 41 through 30, 46. Listen to this. Then, then he will say to those on the left, his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. See, he was prepared for the devil and his angels. But you are accursed, and nothing accursed will be in heaven. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick and in prison, and did not minister to you? They will answer him, saying, then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. He's saying the accursed, when it says nothing, no longer will anything be accursed, be there. It's talking about people. There are some people who will not be allowed to be in the presence of God. Let's go to a familiar passage that we talked about a little over a month ago. Hebrews 5. Let's go back here. Beginning in verse 12, reading through 6, 8. Listen. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, and of instructions about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Listen to this. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain, that is often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless, and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. These passages, along with others that time doesn't allow me to mention, show that the accursed are people that did not obey God. They did not obey God. Contextually, what we just read, some of those people were people who once believed but could not mature past the basic principles of the oracles of God and ended up walking away from the faith. 
And there are times when theology does something wrong here. It imports into it a theological basis, depending on your theology. You start to describe, well, this doesn't really mean real Christians because real Christians, let the passage stand as it says. You can't solve the puzzle. This passage does not give the qualification that theology sometimes makes. It says it is impossible for people who have tasted the heavenly gift. Means you've understood what salvation is like. You were a Christian at some point. You benefited from that. You went to church. You fellowship. You did all those things. It said share in the Holy Spirit. You tasted the goodness of the word of God. You were encouraged by the word. Took notes in the sermon. You memorized scriptures. You tasted the goodness of it. The powers of the age to come. These people saw miracles. You saw things happening that prove that this is real. And he said, if they fall away, it's impossible to restore them to repentance. Why? Because they are crucifying the Son of God, holding him up to contempt, public disgrace. And then he says, why it's impossible. Why is it impossible? Because land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, what that means is if what you've already seen and heard does not affect you, if you can't grow in the community that God has created, that's why we tell people if you can't grow here, don't go here. We're not offended. But don't talk about the community. We're building something here. If that's not you, we're not offended. Bye. We're not offended. We get offended when you talk about the community that's being built. We're trying to build a community of people that are prepared to see Jesus face to face. And you cannot see Jesus face to face if you are not obeying him. You will be accursed. If the land that falls on the rain, if it bears fruit, if it impacts your life, if it changes you, if it causes you to grow, that's the language of producing a crop that's useful. It says you receive a blessing from God. But if the land doesn't do that and it bears thorns and thistles, it means it was worthless. It's cursed and will be burned. And this is a good scheme of the devil. Because the devil has made us think we're confused about obedience. We're confused about obedience, many of us. We think obedience is about not going to hell. It's not. That's not why you obey, to not go to hell. We think obedience is about not going to hell. And it's not. It's not. What it is, is what we're going to talk about next week. Heaven is about being in the presence of Jesus forever. For those of you who are genuine believers in this room, now watching online or watch later, or listening to the podcast, it is imperative that we paradigm shift. If you need to. Maybe you don't need to. Cool. Glad for you. 
but many of us have been schemed by the devil that the thought of worshiping Jesus is boring to us. That our spending time in the word is a chore for us. There will be more people here for a game night than a prayer meeting every time. Every time. There will be more people who stream services than pray every week. Every week. If your eternal destination is boring, you're not excited to go, why do you have confidence that God will say, welcome home? Because I know for me, if I invite people over and I hear that they're complaining about something in my house, I will gladly be like, then don't come. I take the invitation back. And that's just me. I'm wicked. I'm evil. You think a holy God that sent his son to die wants to fill it with people who are not excited to see him forever? Mm, I don't know if grace is that amazing. We need a paradigm shift. We need a paradigm shift. And train ourselves to think of heaven as a place to see Jesus face to face and be excited about that. Because if you're not excited about seeing Jesus, I, I don't know. You might not get to see him. And I'm not, I don't know. I'm saying I don't know. I'm just looking at the passages and being like, man. This is a wild thought. Those of you that are in Dean's group, treasure what is being said there. If you don't know how to think about heaven, ask him, does he have openings? We need a paradigm shift because I don't know. I don't know if you cannot be excited about seeing Jesus and then be given an eternal pass to see him every day. I don't know. And I'm not for the sake of conscience going to pretend like, no, nah, I don't want no, nah, I don't know. But it's not something I want to play around with. So I know I've been cultivating excited about seeing Jesus. And that's what heaven is to me now. Everything else is cool, but I want to see him. But I used to not care about that. So if you need help thinking through that, come talk to me afterwards. Let's pray. Father, you've, you've given us enough descriptions about, about heaven, but the, the, the climax of heaven is that we'll get to see you. That all the things that are from this life, the pain, the suffering, the having to have faith. Like, we don't need faith when we have sight. I don't need to have faith anymore because I get to see you. And all the people that have gone there before us, I don't think any of them are wanting to come back here. We get to see you. And Father, I just want to ask you for forgiveness for all the years 
that I just didn't really, I just wanted to go to heaven to get, it was selfish. I was a selfish heaven thinker. I just wanted to go to escape the things that bother me here. I may not have said it. I may have said, no, I don't think that way, but I didn't really care if you were there or not. I just wanted to get to a place that was opposite of punishment forever. And I thought my obedience was trying to get that, but that's not what obedience is. And that's not what heaven is. Heaven is not the place of no eternal suffering. It's the presence of the face of the sufferer that we get to see. And we're going to worship you for thousands of years because we'll know the minute we get there that we don't belong there. And we'll know more than we could ever imagine right now that we are out of place. And the only reason why we are there is because of you. That's why we'll worship you for thousands of years. Lord, I will sing my, if it were possible to sing my face off. But may it be for all of us May we rethink what we think about our eternal destination and recognize the scheme of the devil for us. For it bothers us to imagine doing something that you're worthy of. And may we go after that thought. We don't deserve to be there. You are inviting us into your home. May we come in and take our shoes off in your house, for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. If there's any questions, can someone grab me a communion thing? Oh, somehow I forgot where I put my... Quick announcement for, for everyone, uh, just to remind us of you, looking forward to heaven. Uh, the bathrooms are not working, so please don't use them. Uh, they are, they're closed, so uh, if you have to go to the bathroom, you'll have to wait till heaven. But... Uh, <laughs> Well, that would be something, bro. <laughs> I, well, then heaven is my home because I'm going to be. It's my home home and it's my home here. I'm, going, I'm using the bathroom at home. Um, we do have a few questions, uh, so I'll, I'll take a look here. Our first question is, uh, if we are to spend it, heaven in, uh, sorry. If we are to spend eternity in heaven do, eternally worshiping, um, how should we for prepare for that reality now? Next what? message. Okay. Next sermon. Next sermon. And to be clear, I don't think the Bible is saying we're going to heaven and going to just be singing for millions of years. That's not how the Bible describes it. That's how the enemy has made us think it's going to be like that. That's not what the Bible says. It says we'll worship, but it doesn't say for millions of years. And remind you, worship is not just singing. We've made worship singing. Worship is a way of life. Singing is just an aspect of worship, but that's, that's all next week. Good question, though. Thank yeah, you for asking that. There was a couple of questions that were directly to what you just said after that, too, of, like, what is that? So I think... What does it look like? Yeah, so covering Good. that next week, I think it'll be great. Yeah. Um, uh, next question is, is there a nuance to how to interpret Hebrews 6? If a Christian walks away from the Lord for some time and decides to come back to the Lord, what is the functional reality for them? Is it possible for them to genuinely repent and follow the Lord after their time of pursuing the world? Is there a nuance to the term fall away that's not apparent here? 
I don't think in this passage it is. I think we appeal to stuff like the prodigal son and stuff like that, but that's not what that story was about either, though, to be honest. I don't think, I think it's not as nuanced as we think. I think, I think the warning in this passage is what God wants people who profess to believe in him to know. That's what he wants to know. If people fall away and then come back, praise God for that. I think God is describing, though, it is not likely for a person. In fact, I've seen the hardest people to reach out to are people that grew up in the church. They're the hardest people to reach out to because they've, they've seen all this. They've done it all before. They've been through this. And it's like, ah, nah, those are the hardest people to reach out to. And this passage explains why. You've, you've tasted this and you decided this isn't good for me. I think it's a scary passage, and we should take it as a warning and not look for nuances, because this is what I think happens. I think sometimes theology gives us nuances that the Bible doesn't, and then people don't take seriously their relationship with the Lord. So you think, like, I mean, if I backslide a little bit, I, don't, I, don't, you, I, I used to go to a church, and they would brag about backsliding. You know, I'm, back, I'm backsliding this weekend. They'd be like, man, you better be talking about doing a moonwalk, Michael Jackson backslide. I know people that would boast, like, I'm back, you know, I was backsliding this weekend. It's like, man, why are you boasting about that? that I just think it's a dangerous perspective. So um, I think there are people who will take theology and say, no true Christian will fall away. Okay, but here's the reality. The true Christian perseveres to the end. Unless you've persevered to the end, I, don't talk to me about it. I haven't persevered to the end. I have confidence that I'm a believer. I believe that I will persevere to the end, but I have not. I have not. You have not. So you can give me all your theology. I've read all of it. At the end of the day, though, we have to persevere to the end. That's the warning of Scripture. This Hebrews 6 is telling you don't fall away. Don't fall away because you might not come back. Don't fall away. That's what the passage is saying to me. I'm not, I'm not worried about nuances that will release someone to think like, man, I can just, because it's not like, you know, godliness is not a switch. Because if it were, we would, all of us would just turn it on, keep it on. It's not, you can't just turn it on. You fall away, and then you feel like, I can't come back. It's like, I don't know how to come back. You know how many people I've counseled that have felt like, I don't know how to not sin. It's like, you were not sinning before you fell innocent. But you lose it. You lose it. It's not like, you know, faith is a, is, a, is a muscle, and if you don't exercise that joint, it goes flat. So I, I think, yeah, there could be nuances there, but that's not what this passage was. That wasn't what this was about today. So with that in mind, um, how should we think about those people who leave the church? Should we pursue them, or um, should we let them go? I, I think it depends on your relationship with the people, to be honest. If my sons walk away from the faith, I'm pursuing them until I die or they die because those are my boys and I love them. If there are people in this church, members of this church, I will go after you to an extent. But if you keep like being like, you're not tripping, you don't care, you're walking away, then like Jesus told Peter, you got to shake the dust off of your feet and keep going. I don't think there's any biblical mandate that tells us to keep chasing after people. But I think there is a biblical mandate to say that we got to love people. We bear their burdens. And so, and I think relationally, there's just going to be some people that you love more. 
There's going to be some people you love more. And my children are of that ilk. They fall away, running. I'm crawling. I'm doing whatever to try to get them back if they fall away, if they walk away. Because there's no guarantee. I can't guarantee that they're going to trust the Lord. All I can try to do is guarantee that they don't reject the Lord because of me. They don't see hypocrisy in me to be like, man, my dad was preaching and stuff and doing all this, but at home he was something else. Right now, that's not their testimony. And by the grace of God, it will never be. But there's no guarantee. So it's like, I'm, I'm, so if I love you, I'm coming after you. I may get on your nerves. I may, but some people, it's like, it's, it's good. You do what you got to do. I mean, Paul, listen, think about this. Paul said, look, turn their flesh over to Satan in hopes that they return. But there is a place for letting people sin. Let them go. In fact, Revelation 22 says it. He says, and let the evildoer keep doing evil. That's what it says. It said, let the, those who are washing their robes keep washing them. The evildoer keep doing evil. But when I come back, I'm giving a reward for what everybody's done. So he said, I mean, he said, let, let the evil do, keep doing evil. So I think there is a place to be like, look, I, I'll pray for you, but I'm going, I'm going to keep it moving. But again, I think it's by relationship. I don't think there's any biblical context to say you have to do this and that. Uh, one additional question here, and then that'll be our last. Um, is there different levels of heaven where one gets put according to their actions and the devotions they had towards God while being on earth? I think you should go to Dean's group on Thursday, and Dean will answer that question. I, I, I think there are rewards in heaven that are different. 100%. I think some people will be rewarded for things more than others because I think that, I mean, you, you got the, um, that, what's that parable? Uh, no, not the sower. Um, the talent. Thank you. My mind was drawing a blank. Parable of the talents. He gave one do one, one do five, one do ten. He came back, five doubled it, ten doubled it, one buried it. Didn't do nothing with it. And he said, take the one that he has and give it to the one who, did, who doubled it, the one who did ten, and throw him in hell. I get concerned that people are burying their talent, making excuses for not obeying God, whether it's their traumas, whether it's their this, whether it's their that, blaming me, blaming others. It's like, look, even if, somebody, even if I sin against you, your, your actions are your actions before God. The Lord will deal with me on me, but you're, you're who you are before God. No one's making you do anything. Your attitude is your attitude. And I think many of us need to get over ourselves. Your attitude is your attitude. Your actions are your actions. My actions are my actions. I've been sinned against a ton in the role of pastor. And I've sinned against people. And it's just life. It happens. It happens. But my actions are my actions. Your actions are your actions. No one's making you do anything. What you feel entitled to is making you do things. No one is making you do anything. No one's making me sin in any way, shape, or form. I may be tempted by what people say and do, but no one is making me do it. So I just think, yeah, I'll save that for next message. That was the last one? All right. If you are a professing believer in Jesus Christ, then you are invited to join us in taking what we call communion, the Lord's Supper. And the reason why we're making this distinction is not because we're trying to be self-righteous or we think we're better. It's because the word, God's word says 
that if you have not professed to believe in Jesus Christ, that you are bringing condemnation